Hello and welcome. I'm Thomas Prosser and I write Tom's Curiosity Shop, a weekly Substack politics blog which examines politics from a heterodox perspective, with particular reference to ideologies, values and institutions. Occasionally, I will do podcasts with special guests, exploring scenes which are featured on my Substack blog. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Rob Henderson, an academic and essayist who is well known for his theory of luxury beliefs. Rob recently submitted a PhD in psychology at Cambridge University and writes essays for a range of online outlets. In a series of essays which have gone viral, Rob has introduced the concept of luxury beliefs. Luxury beliefs are ideas that confer status on the rich at very little cost, while taking a toll on the lower class. One example of luxury belief is that all family structures are equal. This is not true. Evidence is clear that families with two married parents are the most beneficial for young children. And yet, affluent, educated people raised by two married parents are more likely than others to believe monogamy is outdated or that all families are the same. Defending the police is another example of a luxury belief. I hope that you enjoy. And if you do, please think about subscribing to my Substack. So Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Um, if we could start with a, 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 just a general introduction to the concept of luxury beliefs, uh, and, and perhaps you could also talk about your own background, um, but because you've had an extremely interesting life. Uh, sure, yeah, thanks. Thanks again, Thomas, for, for welcoming me here today. Um, well, my idea of luxury beliefs uh, I define as ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while often inflicting costs on the lower classes. And, you know, I, I can give a few examples of this as we as we move along here. But the way that I arrived at this idea was through my uh, you know, unique life experiences and my interactions with students and graduates at elite universities. Uh, so right now I'm a, a fourth year PhD student about to finish uh, my program here at Cambridge. Before this, I uh, studied psychology as well at, at Yale as an undergrad, and I worked as a research assistant uh, at a psych lab uh, on campus at Yale. But before my entrance into these, uh, you know, kind of posh universities, my life was a lot different. Um, so yeah, just backing way up, I was uh, born into poverty um, in Los Angeles. My mother uh, was an immigrant from South Korea, and she uh, became addicted to drugs. Um, she didn't know who my father was. I, I never met him. And when I was three, she was no longer able to care for me. So I was placed into foster care in LA and spent my early childhood living in um, just a bunch of different foster homes all around the city. Uh, some of these homes had, you know, eight, 10 plus kids living in them, a lot of foster siblings, a lot of kids coming and going. It was really tough for me as a kid. Um, I was adopted by a working class family uh, when I was eight, almost eight. And we settled in a, this kind of rural town in Northern California called Red Bluff, uh, which is consistently ranked as one of the most uh, uh, dangerous cities uh, in California. And my adoptive parents, you know, we, we sort of had this, this nice little family together, but then they divorced uh, a couple of years, about a year and a half later. 
And my adoptive father subsequently severed ties with me. He was angry at my adoptive mother for leaving him. And so that was hard on me, you know, after not knowing my birth father and then the foster homes and then losing a, you know, my adoptive father. It was just a really tough life. You know, my, my adoptive mother, we subsequently moved into a duplex and I was raised by this single mom for a while. And there was just a lot of drama and disorder uh, all throughout my youth. So when I was 17, right after I graduated high school, um, I joined the military as a, out of sort of desperation just to get out of all of the stuff I'd admired in. All of my high school friends were in similar situations uh, in sort of families and, you know, uh, home life just completely falling apart. All of us were doing very badly in school. Um, so I left, uh, enlisted, um, and then, you know, long story short, sort of helped that 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 process of of military helped me get my life together and get on a better track. And that was how I ended up uh, attending Yale and and uh, here at Cambridge. Uh, and so I've, I've, I've uh, yeah, those those experiences have have shaped the way that I view You're an the class system, yeah. Yeah. Um, my interactions with these students, and then as well my um, my readings of these kind of classic uh, sociological texts, as well as more modern research from psychology. Uh, so, so, you know, Thorsten Veblen's Theory of the Leisure Class, Pierre Bourdieu's Distinction, Paul Fussell's Class, A Guide Through the American Status System. Uh, and then, yeah, this recent research from psychology indicating that um, higher status, wealthier individuals tend to be the most preoccupied with status. And so I became just uh, extremely uh, interested in exploring this idea of, you know, why is it that uh, there are these interesting class divisions in political views and moral views and how things should be? And uh, the way that I think about it is luxury beliefs are, you know, the new status symbol, you know, in the past, the upper class displayed their status and their social rank with their material goods. And today they, they still do so to some extent, but as material goods have become more affordable, it, it's, uh, it's a less reliable indicator of class. And so now um, uh, affluent people, elite you know, students and graduates of these kind of top universities and, and the like, they display their positions now with uh, luxury beliefs, which are these sort of novel and unusual beliefs, but they often have detrimental secondary uh, consequences, these sort of knock-on effects uh, for people who are sort of, uh, you know, don't have access to the same kinds of resources. Yeah, so that, that's fascinating. Um, it, you, you had an amazing life. Um, and I, I, I recommend uh, listening to Rob's podcast with Barry Weiss for, for more on, on his life story. Um, but today we're, we're really going to dig deep in, into the ideas. Um, and one of the questions I wanted to ask was really in your writings and podcast appearances, you, you really emphasize um, economic drivers of luxury beliefs. Um, but, but you're a psychologist, of course, you, you've just um, submitted a psychology PhD at, uh, at, at, at Cambridge. Um, and so I was wondering how do, um, can you tell us a bit more about the psychological drivers of, um, of this uh, phenomenon and how also how they articulate uh, with economic drivers? Because actually um, a, lot, a lot of people for, uh, recent political developments. Uh, there's a lot of talk about economic drivers, but in something like right populism, the, the academic literature shows that economic factors actually aren't that that great a predictor uh, of, mm. of right populist views. Now, there's unfortunately there's not much research at all um, on, on on liberal or, or left liberal views, um, but it, it's a fascinating question. So, so if you could elaborate on that a bit. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, I guess there are different different ways of thinking about it from a psychological perspective. So, so I mentioned some research earlier. This is research from Cameron Anderson, I think, at Berkeley, who's basically found, uh, and, and, and not just just Anderson, but but others that. Um, the most highly ranking people in society, the people with the most wealth, but not just the most wealth, but also the, the sort of most prestigious occupations and the sort of highest social standing in society. Uh, if you ask them, you know, questions about like how interested they are in having uh, influential positions or power over others or control over resources or all of those kinds of things, they're the most interested in those things, which is perhaps a little counterintuitive, um, at least you know, I think I would have predicted in advance that the people at the lowest end, the sort of lowest rung of society would be the most interested in obtaining influence and resources and power and so on, but it's not, it's the people at the top who want more. Um, so that's one perspective here is, you know, it's, it's, it's really something about, uh, you know, wanting to gain more influence when you're already in that position. And, you know, there's also a, an evolutionary psychology perspective here uh, about, you know, people who, you know, naturally uh humans favor having uh, sort of the respect and admiration of their peers and they want to you know be be well liked and be well regarded because you know just this is very simplified but you know in the ancestral environment you needed the uh validation and acceptance of your peers in order to survive uh in those sort of small scale communities uh and so so you know the the psychology that that arose in that environment remains with us today and so when you're around, um, you know, people who hold a certain worldview and certain sort of sociopolitical beliefs, uh, it's very uncomfortable to challenge that. Um, I can even feel it myself. You know, I, I've, uh, you know, ridiculed and challenged a lot of these luxury beliefs, but even I can feel myself. And I don't, you know, I don't know how much of it is conscious versus sort of implicit or unconscious, but I can sort of feel myself like speaking in ways that I had never spoken before, uh, entertaining ideas that I would have never entertained, you know, seven or eight years ago before, you know, when I was still, you know, a lowly enlisted service member. Um, and so a lot of this is sort of going on, you know, under the hood in the, you know, in, in our, in our psychology. And this is because we want to get along, right? Like, you know, now I'm in academia. I want to get along with my peers. I have to sort of behave and speak in a certain way and so on. Uh, and even if I disagree, I have to couch it in a certain way so that I'm not despised. <laughs> and so uh, all of these things are, are, are um, I think, psychological drivers here. But then there's also the desire for, uh, you know, what Pierre Bourdieu, he was a sociologist, but he called it distinction, um, which is this, uh, this desire to... Uh, signal against the the group that you don't want to be associated with and so if uh you know if a belief is conventionally held by working class or lower middle class people a very simple way for you to wish yourself is to uh, question that belief or or say you believe the opposite of that and i think that's a lot of what we're seeing with sort of upper middle class and upper class people is you know what's sort of the prevailing views of the conventional you know ordinary person in society and i'll turn that on its head and you know challenge it or question it or say something different uh just so that i could stand out from those people so those two things in common sort of wanting to distinguish yourself from you know the the, the masses but then also wanting to fit in with your um with your social group with your social circle uh together i think have cultivated uh what i call luxury beliefs
Yeah, yeah, fascinating. It, it really, um, it, it's really notable actually that there's uh, so, so little research on um, on on the economic foundations of of, of left wing uh, slash liberal ideologies because it the mm. the difference with with research on on right populism is really conspicuous. Actually, there have been a, a mountain of studies, and I think it's because it goes a little too close to home. For, uh, for for academic researchers, um, that, that that's one of the reasons. But uh, well, have you seen this recent research uh, on on left wing authoritarianism? So I've this seen is not, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Research in social psychology, and you know, it's funny. I mean, the 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 construct of right wing authoritarianism. I believe it was you know it arose in like the nineteen fifties. Um, was it like Theodore Adorno or someone mm -hmm. from the Frankfurt School had had uh, you know uh, what? set the foundations for it and then it became a sort of accepted construct in social psychology for decades and it mm. was only within the last i think two years that you know researchers in in the field began thinking like maybe there's a left-wing authoritarianism yeah. too let's have a look and yeah. yeah they're finding consistently that there's uh, there's a lot of overlap between people on the left like on the extreme left and the extreme right who hold these kind of authoritarian views um but it, it is interesting this asymmetry where there's you know decades and mountains of research on on right wing authoritarianism, but uh, you know there's now what five papers on left wing authoritarianism. Yeah, it's extremely conspicuous and it's a big problem, you know. So so yeah. no no I, I really hope that um, that you know your comfortable luxury belief re really deserves to, you know to be empirically tested extensively. And I hope to see um, to see that that in in, in coming years actually. Um, mm. Moving on um, to, um, you, you, as, as I was saying, you're, you're a psychologist, um, and with, with luxury beliefs, um, one, one thing I haven't really seen you discuss in your, your, your writing is whether you think that these, these um, beliefs are ben uh, psychologically beneficial or harmful, because according to someone like uh, Jonathan Haidt, uh, they're, they're actually harmful. So then that raises the, the, the question, if, if they're harmful, um, why do people have them? Oh, right. Well, I think it, it depends, right? So the people who espouse these beliefs are, are not harmed by them, and if they are harmed, it's not uh, the 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 damage they incur is not as severe as other people who would adopt these beliefs. So, in some of my writings about luxury beliefs, I've brought in the idea of um, costly signaling theory, uh, which is essentially um, you know this idea that the uh, amount of resources uh, or effort expended to to make some kind of of display uh, to invest in a signal uh, is basically an indicator of the underlying quality of what that signal is meant to, to convey. So the classic example is the peacock's tail. Uh, so, you know, peacock carries around this, this uh, large set of tail feathers, which is actually detrimental to its survival, but it's also an indicator to peahens that, you know, it's, it's very fit. It can afford to lug this thing around. Well, I argue that, you know, for, in many cases for luxury beliefs, it's also an indicator of, of one's, uh, it's, it's a signal of, of one's position in society that they're so well off that they can afford to entertain yeah, ideas that are disconnected yeah. from reality. Um, and even if they themselves, you know, practice, so, you know, I've called polyamory, for example, a luxury belief. And if you're, you know, a, a certain kind of person with a certain kind of temperament and disposition and education and, and res resources and all of those things, you can 
experiment with you know novel relationship arrangements and if it goes bad if there are kids involved if you know there are hurt feelings and so on if there, you know there can be a lot of emotional fallout from from jealousy and all those things but if you have money and resources and whatever then uh you can you can afford to deal with it but if 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 polyamory you know i'm just using this example as a luxury belief uh spreads to people who are in a different social position um then the cost they incur is is much more dire uh and you can sort of see this with the um proliferation of the championing of, of sexual freedom for example i mean you can see the you know, the number of out of wedlock uh births among uh high school graduates in the u.s you know women who are high school graduates something like less than 10 percent of women with college degrees uh, have a baby out of wedlock uh versus for people with whose highest level of education is just high school uh it's more than 50 percent um but in the past, uh, in uh, the early 1960s, the uh, two groups were identical. Uh, about 5% of babies were born out of wedlock for, for both uh, social groups, for both sort of educational categories. Uh, but in that period, in the early 1960s, the um, you know, universities and people who wield the outside social influence began um, sort of challenging a lot of the social norms and uh, subverting a lot of the cultural guardrails, and they could afford some of the, the the damage from from what they were espousing. But as those beliefs proliferated throughout society, um, the uh, less fortunate uh, incurred much of the cost. And so this was why, for example, you know, when I tell the story about when I was at Yale, uh, something like ninety percent of my classmates were raised uh, in a two-parent sort of stable family. Uh, 90%. Whereas when I look at my high school, in my I had five close friends in my high school, uh, and out of the six of us, uh, none of us were raised by two married parents. Uh, it was you know, sort of me with my you know unusual background, my friends raised by single mothers or grandparents or you know extended family members or foster care. I mean, it was completely different these social realities, um, and so it's not harmful. Uh, for the people who espouse the luxury beliefs, and relatively less, even if they do adhere to them, which many of them don't. Uh, but for the less fortunate, the sort of lower income people, people lower on the ladder, uh, it is detrimental uh, to them. And this is something that I that I try to highlight is, you know, you can you can espouse the beliefs and maybe they make you look good. Maybe they increase your status in your local community. But uh, in the long run, they are uh, often uh, not good for society as a whole. Yeah, that's a really interesting answer. I, I was also, I, I thought, um, I, I've been thinking of a book I read recently. Um, it appeared in 2010, and I've managed to forget the names of the authors. Actually, two um, economists slash anthropologists, um, and, and they um, prepared a, a, a game theoretical model of evolution, and their argument is, is that human cultures, those ideas, benefit groups rather than individuals. Um, because um, culture was selected at group level um, in, in an evolutionary context. Um, so I guess, you know, you know, it could be a bit of both. Uh, I hadn't really thought of, of your, your explanation, but, but uh, that, that's fascinating. And well, I, what did you mean by this? So, so this idea of, uh, of ideas benefiting groups? Yes. Um, well, well, basically, the, the idea is, is that... Um, be the, the in evolutionary contexts um mm. the, the 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 groups uh that, that were fittest were, were, were the ones um that, that, that survived and, and thrived and so um ideas um that, that benefited the, the group 
um, tended in, in the long run, tended to thrive, and, and, and as well, um, human psychology, um, you know, you know the, 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 the basis on, on one, one, which one holds individual beliefs. Um, evolve ah, right. in such a way. Can you? Yeah, I'm sorry, I may, may not be explaining it so well because I. It's oh, no, 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 no. It sounds like, um, yeah, like cultural evolution, yes. sort of like related to like maybe mimetic theory. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the luxury beliefs are actually, uh, uh, you know, disadvantageous uh, in, for survival in that context in the long run. Um, you know, I think they're, you know, maybe, maybe they're useful, uh, you know, they're memes that survive, but I think like in terms of uh, benefiting yeah. the human communities, I, I you know, because yeah. not all memes are good, right? There are a lot no, of No, 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 of course, no. It could yeah. be something that benefits the class, the, the class yeah. rather than the society, yeah. you know, it, okay, it's harmful for individuals and the society, it benefits the class, so. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah, yeah, oh. I'll have to think more about that. Yeah, yeah I'll, I mean, I'll send you the, the link and also in the, the transcript of uh, of the podcast, I'll, I'll, I'll include the, the actual title. It's a, it's a really good and thought-provoking book. Um, okay. And, and yeah, and what, what I was going to add as well is I guess the, the, the research on the benefit of being in a family, um, mm. there's no debate on it. You know, you know, the findings are, um, you know, uh, pretty unambiguous uh, and, and it, it really... Yeah, it, it like you, it irritates me that um, the family isn't promoted more, but because it, it's so clear uh, that, 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 that there are benefits for, especially for um, for, for lower classes. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's been, uh, I mean, the research that I've dug into, I, I used to be just repeatedly surprised because my, all of my, you know, sort of beliefs, were well often many of them were overturned some of them were confirmed but generally what i what i consistently find is that um you know there there are two different constructs in uh this is usually used in uh, evolutionary or, or developmental psychology these two constructs one is um childhood uh harshness uh harshness is essentially a uh, low income you know sort of um uh low resources and then the other uh that that is often studied is um childhood unpredictability or instability mm -hmm. uh and, and this is a little bit i guess uh, it's a little more nuanced which is essentially how often the kid relocated how many different uh family members moved in and out of the home how disorderly was the kid's day-to-day -day life and environment how sort of safe did they feel um, and these two things do correlate to some degree, but they're far from perfect. I mean, the correlation coefficients like, you know, 0.2 or 0.3, meaning that there are plenty of families who do have money and there's plenty of disorder and instability in them. Um, and there are plenty of low-income families that, that do manage to provide stable homes for their kids. Um, but, but consistently what I found is that like when you're interested in outcomes like um, risky behavior as adolescents or criminal behavior in adulthood, or addiction, or uh, even things like depression and anxiety, and all these things that we we care about, um, unpredictability or in, in childhood instability is much more strongly correlated than childhood socioeconomic status or childhood uh, harshness. Uh, and so, this to me, this indicates that you know being uh, being poor is not you know it doesn't have nearly the same effect as as growing up in in chaotic and disorderly environments. Um, and and this is true even controlling for socioeconomic status. Uh, there was a study I encountered recently, uh, and I read carefully, which basically showed that, um, you know, uh, what was it? Uh, this was measuring uh, substance abuse in adolescence. So kids who grew up in rich but unstable families were more likely to become addicted 
or get involved in substances as as teenagers uh, than poor kids who are raised in stable uh, families. So to me, like the preoccupation with economics and and um, sort of poverty and all these things, I think it's important. It's something you know, I am certainly not against uh, financial assistance for low income communities. But once you reach a sort of certain minimal point of, of economic well-being, um, beyond that, I think it's much more about sort of the social and emotional uh, needs for young kids that matter more for how they turn out later in life. Mm, yeah, yeah, it, it's yeah, you know, it, it and it, and unfortunately, many policymakers seem not to be aware of it. It's um, it's really it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Yeah, I think there's this. Retreat to discussions of economics and money because uh, everything else feels too uncomfortable for people to discuss. You know, it's there's something safe about talking about money and how if only people had enough money or if we had more sort of uh, assistance, then this would alleviate a lot of problems. But once you start talking about you know uh, how how parents spend their time or you know, uh, abandonment, neglect, abuse, all of those things, people don't want to feel judgmental. And so they, they clam up. They don't want to talk about those things. Uh, if you want to get even more controversial, I think religion as well is a mm. major predictor of, um, of, 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 of child welfare. Um, it's, mm. uh, personally, I'm, I'm not, I'm not religious, but you know, it also mm. raises questions, you know, um, yeah. of what, you know, um, and actually that, um, I think, yeah, do you know what, I'll, I'll skip, uh, I, I'd scheduled another question, but we'll move to that later, but, but because it, it, this moves in quite nicely to, um, to, to another issue. Um, in your podcast with Barry Weiss, uh, I, I really recommend listening to that one. Um, I was intrigued by the discussion of structural versus individual explanations of outcomes and implications for the working classes, you know. Uh, you, you, you know, you, you say um, that, that a lot, among liberals, there, there are lots of explanations like, oh, you know, they, they're in poverty, they, they, they can't help it, you know, why should they take responsibility? But actually, um, for individuals, that, 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 that can be a disaster, you know, um, if, if you, you know, if you don't accept responsibility of your life, you know, you don't see yourself as being in charge of your own destiny i i guess the issue i i can't really i'm i've been thinking about this and the, the the problem i have is as a social scientist i really um believe strongly in structural explanation but because i think the evidence is most consistent with that but at the same time if i were giving advice to um to, to someone in a difficult situation, I wouldn't just say, oh, it's just structures, you know, that, I, that, that would be a disaster. And it ties in as well with the issue of religion even, you know, because I, I'm, for, for example, I, I'm, on the one hand, I, I, I was just thinking now, just religion predicts um, individual welfare, I think particularly among um, lower classes, but, but I, I would be quite uncomfortable, I think very uncomfortable with just saying to someone, you know, um, go to church, believe this, if I didn't believe it to be, um, to be true. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's a difficult question. I mean, the, the religion question is fascinating. I mean, I've seen research showing that uh, if you are religious and attend, a, you know, some kind of religious service weekly, 
that the effect on happiness is equivalent from moving uh, from the bottom income quintile to the top income quintile in terms of, you know, so, so basically, yeah, it's like earning an extra, you know, several tens of thousands of pounds or dollars more a year um, on, in terms of your happiness. Uh, and so, but yeah, I mean, I'm not a personally religious, but, but yeah, I, I do think there's value there that, uh, that a lot of, um, you know, very sort of, you know, academically adept and smart people uh, uh, often ridicule or, or undermine. But in terms of your, you know, regarding your question, I, yeah, so, you know, broadly speaking, of course, there are structural issues. The system isn't perfect. There's no system that's ever been perfect. But I think that um, uh, overemphasizing it is harmful uh, to, to, you know, disadvantaged people, to uh, lower income communities. And, you know, the reason for this is that, uh, you know, it, it's all well and good for, you know, you and I, you know, living fairly comfortable lives to talk about, you know, how, how bad things are and how, you know, people are uh, uh, sort of dispossessed and so on. But when you're living in that environment, that's, that's just not a helpful mindset. You know, if someone had sat down next to me when I was a kid and said, um, you know, you know, why, why would you be interested in going to college? You know, like less than 3% of foster kids go to college, you know, that, like the foster care system is completely fucked up and there's no way that you're going to make it. And like, you know, whatever, 25% of foster kids end up homeless and, you know, rattled off all of these statistics related to structural issues in the foster care system. Um, you know, and if, if I was 15 years old or something hearing all of that, I would have been like, oh, all right, well, I guess like, you know, that the, there goes that dream. I'll just uh, resign myself to, to being another sort of uh, uh, data point in these statistics or something. Uh, but I, I'm grateful that none of, none of the, that, none of that ever reached me. You know, I was, I grew up in this kind of like dusty uh, working class town, you know, Twitter and all that. It just wasn't around back then. And plus just, you know, the, Nobody I knew was like a member of the chattering class, you know, very few college graduates around me, that kind of stuff. And so it was like a different mindset of just working hard, trying to scrape by, doing what you can to make it and, and try to improve yourself. Um, a lot of people failed, but I'm glad that that, um, that attitude was pervasive for the most part. Um, and, you know, I remember, so I worked at a, um, at a restaurant when I was in high school I was a dishwasher at this Italian restaurant and, you know, a lot of my coworkers were, you know, like burnout guys, you know, in their like early twenties, they had tattoos and long hair and like pierced eyebrows and stuff. I mean, you know, a lot of these guys were, you know, they were like wannabe rockers or something and, but they were fun. I enjoyed hanging out with them. And, you know, I remember when I left that job, uh, I was 16. I uh, had gotten a job at a, at a supermarket bagging groceries and, you know, collecting carts from the parking lot and you know, whatever. And so I told my manager this at this restaurant. He's a guy in his 40s who had spent time in prison and, you know, uh, later on became a manager of this restaurant. And he took me aside and he was like, this is what you want to do in life. He's like, I'm, ha I'm proud of you. You know, like <laughs> no one wants to wash dishes for a living. So I'm glad that you're getting out of the dish room. You got this other job. You know, it's, uh, it it's, it's a step up. And like, is it a big step up, you know, going from washing dishes to bagging groceries? I mean, maybe not in the grand scheme of things, but in my little mind, when I was 16, having this talk with my manager, I felt good. You know, it felt good that that was what he was imparting to me is like you, each job you have should be a little better than the one you had before. 
uh, and and in, you know, if, if instead some you know forty year old college professor had said like, you know, you're just stuck here. Oh, you wash dishes and now you're bagging groceries, and that's just your sort of one dead end job after another. Like that's just structural issues here. Um, I don't know. Like I think that would have contaminated my mind and perhaps uh, led me on a different path. So I think it's possible, you know, to hold two ideas in mind at once that, yes, there are issues that we should be thinking about trying to solve. But on the other hand, like also uh, reminding people that, you know, you do exercise control in your everyday life. And there, there are, are ways to, you know, no matter what what's your circumstances, there are ways to, to improve it, however incrementally. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I think I've been exposed to too much social science research. You, you can get very fatalistic and even nihilistic, you know, if you read um, so some of the findings in, in, in journals, actually, that's really good. Um, so moving, um, moving on to another issue, um, I, I write quite, quite a lot about liberalism um, on, on my substack. Um, as, as we know, liberalism has undergone um, many changes uh, in, in recent years. Uh, many people have been very critical uh, of the, the, the direction that liberals gone in. Um, uh, for, for example, regarding social justice ideology, um, and, and of course, uh, the, the idea of um, luxury beliefs is, is very relevant to this. So, so what does luxury beliefs tell us about the development of liberalism? Do, do you think that, but because obviously liberalism, is, it, it's a very old uh, ideology and there, there are many different expressions of it. Do you, do you think that partly insulates it from, from luxury beliefs? People who identify as political liberals anyway are are reluctant to challenge luxury beliefs um i'm not sure why this is i mean my understanding of, of liberalism which you know i know there's many strands but i mean is, is sort of this value pluralism of you know sort of being able to uh you know pursue what goals you desire this sort of um impartial justice um you know human rights and so on but luxury beliefs inherently sort of prizes some people over others, some groups over others. Um, I think it can often exploit our empathy for historically mistreated groups. Um, and so, you know, the, the luxury beliefs have already sort of embedded themselves in the uh, minds and attitudes and behaviors of, um, you know, the, the upper middle class and, and members of the upper class. And, you know, just if you look at like survey data, for example, even something like defund the police, which, you know, I, I don't, I don't believe that that would be a sort of classically liberal idea because, you know, I think classical liberals do sort of value, uh, uh law and sort of and those kinds of things. So if you look at, at least what I found, the, the survey data from YouGov in 2020, the people who were the most in favor of the defund the police movement were people in the highest income category. So people who earned more than $100,000 a year, this is in the US. Um, and people in the lowest income category, uh, people who earned less than, I think less than $30,000 a year, uh, they were the least in favor of defunding the police. Uh, and so in a way, like at least in that instance, the lowest income people were you know, the most quote unquote liberal or classically liberal or something. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if liberalism is, is, is immune from it. Maybe, maybe this is just a temporary blip 
and people will come back around. I have seen people uh, suggest that, you know, liberalism is robust to a lot of the stuff that we're seeing now, but, you know, time will tell. Yeah, it, it's tremendously interesting. Of, of course, you, you know, I share your your, your concern with, with some of the developments. Um, I, I think I, I'm fairly optimistic that um, liberalism is, is, is robust. But, you know, when you read surveys that say that something like, I think, 50% of Democrats um, support defunding the police, it, it just... Um, Buckles your mind, but because there is no way that one could say that defund the police is a liberal um, is is a liberal goal. It's just you know, it's just not. Um, yeah, and, uh, and no one, as you were saying, I, I'm very worried about the the, the lack of appetite among moderates to take uh, you know the the, the radicals on, um, and it, it, yeah. it suggests that. Um, that 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 liberalism is is heading in a pretty dark direction for for the moment, at least. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it seems that way. I mean, in, you know, short term things may, you know, remain the same or perhaps get worse, but, you know, I mean, liberalism has, I, I suppose, uh, undergone more, uh, you know, more sort of, uh, severe tests than, mm. than yeah, what yeah, it's yeah. going through right now. And it's, yeah. it's come around, but, but, you know, the tests it went through, you know, that's, that's sort of a, a euphemistic way of putting it. I mean, during those periods of time, there was a lot of, uh, you know, unpleasantness occurring, a lot of death and destruction and, and, and pain and so on before liberalism sort of, uh, yes. uh, uh triumphed. Yes, exactly. So, uh, you know, long-term maybe it's, there's, there's something there, something worth being optimistic about, but, but short-term, a lot of, a lot of bad things can happen, mm -hmm. uh, often with the, the sort of best of intentions. Um, and I think a lot of people who hold the luxury beliefs, you know, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that all of them are, you know, doing it consciously or in, in, in a sort of calculated way. I think a lot of them are just sort of getting along and trying to do the right thing. They have their hearts in the right place, mm -hmm. uh, but they just don't spend a lot of time reflecting on um, the consequences of, of, of a lot of the things that they're espousing and, yeah. and thinking about how, uh, how much of a mismatch their own lives are because oftentimes you know a lot of these people uh, they they don't what is it the term they don't uh uh well, i guess yeah they don't practice what they preach and they don't preach what they practice so um that is something that i've that i've been trying to, to underline of course yeah no that, that, that that's really interesting uh, and a final question on on implications uh for, for for liberal democracy but because i when i again when i when i've been reading um your 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 work on luxury beliefs i've, I've been thinking about um sociology literature on stratification um but because luxury beliefs it's a sort of a symptom of of stratification you know um as you point out, um, there, there's a reason why these beliefs are prevalent at places like Yale, um, but, but because they're they're highly stratified for an environment in, involving you know the, the upper classes. Now, historically, um, stratification is bad for liberal democracy. Um, so uh, I, I was wondering if if, if you, you you'd thought about that and how uh, luxury beliefs might make liberal democracy probably worse. I'm guessing, but maybe what what, what better. Uh, one one facet of luxury beliefs uh, is basically the the idea that people will prize uh, status and approval mm. over truth, um, and. Anytime people prize 
social status over the truth, I think bad things can happen. Uh, you know, sort of the further away you drift from objective reality and uh, the, the worst things can get. And so if people are not willing to confront, you know, what's actually going on and prefer to, um, you know, sort of fluff up their, their peacock feathers and, and look very good to their peers, uh, rather than uh, trying to understand what you know what, what's going on with uh, historically mistreated groups and people who actually need help and so on, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I w one idea I've been sort of toying with, uh, perhaps another example of a luxury belief is you know what at the moment I've been thinking about calling it a trickle down meritocracy, mm. uh, which is this idea you know a lot of people on the left uh, will ridicule trickle down economics often associated with the right that oh you know if you, just let the rich people keep all their money, then somehow that money is going to magically, you know, trickle down to the hands of the dispossessed and the poor. Well, trickle down meritocracy is is often an idea uh, championed by, I would say, people like liberals, but also people on on, on the hard left as well. That you know, we meet, we need more. Um, uh, uh, what underrepresented and disadvantaged groups uh, in positions of power. Um, and somehow this is going to solve the structural issues. And the idea seems to be that if we can go to these, uh, you know, these communities, these disadvantaged communities, and just pluck a few of those people out and and put them into these positions, then, you know, somehow like the benefits that they accrue are going to trickle down to the communities that continue well, to languish. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought of that before. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. But 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 it, yeah, it actually doesn't tend to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. It doesn't seem to work, right? Uh, the communities don't seem to improve. What you tend to see are, uh, you know, members of those groups leaving and entering elite institutions, and their own lives get a lot better but the communities themselves that they left uh, continue to languish often uh, they get worse but somehow this is okay because oh look at you know uh, how many you know uh, whatever how many executives there are at Goldman Sachs who are members of these you know disadvantaged groups or how many you know members of the class of the, you know the new class at Harvard you know how many you know how, how diverse it is but but why should those things matter when the communities they came from are continuing to uh, to suffer through you know the the, the plight of of being you know in, in that kind of environment? So um, I think that this is like uh, this is often a maybe one manifestation of of this idea of, of luxury beliefs uh, you know making making liberal democracy arguably worse. Yeah, great. That that was fascinating, Rob. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, Please uh, and, and and do follow uh, Rob on 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 Twitter and and uh, sign up to his newsletter. Um, and do you have a book coming out next year, Rob? Uh, yeah, late late this year. Oh wow! Uh, it's, it's a memoir about my my experiences oh. in in the foster system and how I ended up uh, getting to getting to where I am today. Oh, excellent! Yeah, well, well I, I, I can't wait for that to come out. I'm sure it'll be great. Yeah. So so, so thank you yeah. so much, Rob, for. Um, for, for, for joining us today. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed that. If you did, please think about subscribing to my Substack. I write about these issues every week and subscribing is free.